Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And, you know, you can have the best instrumental band in the world. You can have incredible musicians full of great time feel and technique and facility and love. And, you know, if you don't have the right sound engineer, that chances are that the band's never going to get off the ground. And I've, you know, in my journeys, I've uh, recognized that um, really it's the engineers, either in a live setting or, or in the studio, that oftentimes create that feeling on the album. And back when we had freeform radio and people had hardwire radios in their cars... Uh, they were able to detect this authenticity through their spe- their antiquated speakers and their Volkswagen Beetles or their their buses or their cars, and those became radio hits. And my guest is somebody who started his career in arguably one of the greatest times in American music history in the early '60s, and is most well known for uh, creating incredible uh, records with um, you know really um, how should I say this just just efficiency, leanness, but yet still allowing that fire to come through the recording, which, quite frankly, I don't hear in modern music today. At 42 years old, it's very hard for me to listen to modern music because of the recording process and because of the miking techniques and because of the technology. In many ways, it has superseded the humanity in recording. And uh, it has been a lo- it's funny because I reached out to uh, a dear brother, Jim Keltner, a few weeks ago, as I often do. I, I asked him to hook me up with uh, these cats who often are, you know, not necessarily off the grid, but they're doing other things in their life right now. And um, I called him once and I called him twice. And the next thing you know, once you get a fire under Keltner, he was calling the musicians union. He was calling this, that. Eventually, he tracked my guests down. They talked for a long time and reconnected, which is another big part of my show is connection. And uh, now I get a chance to uh, to talk to him. What an honor. Bruce Botnick, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be with uh, all the 
music lovers out there. Yeah, it's truly an honor, my friend. You know, I, I, I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about um, the cats that were... I remember talking to an engineer. Uh, uh, he wound up doing the sound for the Grateful Dead was Dan Healy. And he, mm-hmm. he, um, he talked about the, the generation before his um, really being coming out of the army. And they were very straight cats, the engineers I'm talking about. And they were not interested in long-haired, uh, you know, hippies that had different ways of doing things. But yet, um, I wanted to know if you had any mentors uh, when you got to L.A. in the studio. I know Bill Putnam was around, but was there anybody that you can pinpoint as somebody that was inspiring to you uh, that was already ensconced in the studio scene? Well, when I got out of high school because of my father's connections. <clears throat> he was a musician. My mother was a musician. Uh, he knew the head of Liberty Records, Cy Warnker. His son was uh, later on to become a major force in the record business. Uh, and the uh, he got me a job as an apprentice at Liberty Records Recording Studio. Liberty Records later on became part of EMI. They were sold, and uh, with another label, Dalton, which had a lot of uh, the ventures, were one of those acts. Anyway, at the studio, uh, Ted Keep, this engineer, he was a wild and crazy guy who had originally worked at 20th Century Fox in their music scoring stage. And um, I, I went to him and played him a bunch of stuff that I'd recorded in high school of the orchestras and choirs and bands and whatnot, two microphones and things like that. And he said, you know, you come here. So for almost two years, I worked there. I didn't get a paid a dime, which was okay, except they bought meals and things like that. Sure. And uh, I, he, in, he was the one, that he won Grammys for creating uh, the Chipmunks, you know, and the Purple People Eater, you know, novelty songs of that period. And he did uh, Julie London. And uh, so he was the guy that I watched. And he created the very first that I know of, uh, Remote Truck for going out and recording live. He had an 18-foot Freuhoff trailer. Wow. And he had this, he had probably one of the very first solid-state consoles ever. And in those days, all studios made their own consoles. They didn't buy them. There wasn't SSL. There wasn't Neve. Uh, there wasn't Sound Techniques. Um, so you had to build them. I mean, I even... Columbia Records built their own consoles. RCA built their own consoles. So he built his, and he had a small one that he put in that truck, and we uh, went out and did remote gigs with. So he was pretty inspirational for me. What uh, can you? I mean, I'm very familiar with with Liberty and um, and Dalton. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of the the live? Uh, performances that that you recorded that got pressed on vinyl 
Are you talking about li live recording? Well, the, with the truck. I mean, I, I'm used to, oh. like, Ed Bogus, like, doing the Cal Jader stuff, but I've never, I would love to know what you were doing. Well, I, um, I, I, I ran cables. I set up the studio. Uh, I was basically a gopher learning. I learned how to cut vinyl. I mean, how to cut acetates on a, a, a cutting lathe. Um, what had happened is when I was a kid listening to music, and I listened to a lot, in those days they used to print on the back of the albums the microphones used to, in the recording and the tape machines and all that. And uh, when I got into the studio with professionals and myself and started to put those microphones up, I went, oh my God, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> So it's unfortunate that we don't post a lot of that, but I've, in years gone by, I have done that on um, uh, the Doors records, you know, reissues, uh, on movie scores, you know, lots of lots of different things that I that I have notes on and what I used. But um, I'm trying to think live things we did. You know, one of the only live <laughs> a couple live things. We took the truck once out into some community in Orange County, I guess. And Ted was good friends with Clayton Moore, who was the Lone Ranger. Wow. And he got Clayton to come out dressed as the Lone Ranger. And we recorded some event. And Clayton was cool because I, I only knew him, you know, on TV with the mask on as the Lone Ranger. And then when I met him without him, I did, you know, he, he was a whole different guy. And if you go online, I think at Wikipedia and look him up, you'll find photographs of him without the mask. <laughs> that was one I remember. And then we did uh, for Disney, and this is moving way down the line years later, uh, I hired Ted and his truck to record a gospel Clara Ward singers at Disneyland because they were playing in one of the I can't remember one of the theaters at Disneyland in the daytime and we did a live album at night and it was really cool that came out on vinyl it's on Disneyland records Clara Ward singers I want to read you something about but we did a lot of movie work where I was working uh, uh, a boom and uh, for dialogue recording so we did a lot of that in the truck more more than al album recording so you would go it would be like the um, you'd be going out and doing uh audio for like on the set like like western films or uh, mm -hmm. you know yeah, we did a few i never i remember we did i did one fist film a western film and uh and then I did a uh, kind of a film noir downtown Los Angeles film where I worked where I worked booming. That was a great experience. What, do you remember the name of that film? No, neither film. <laughs> I mean, I want to read. They, they were yeah. they were B less than B. <laughs> it doesn't matter about the. It's only about the sound. 
this is oh, well it was it's about the experience that's know? true that's no you're 100 percent right i you know i wanted to read this i had an opportunity to interview creed taylor uh mm. a few years ago and <clears throat> doing a i was doing a documentary on um stan getz that is still in limbo that i hope um will eventually get off the ground and i want to read this to you and then see if it resonates with you at all <clears throat> he said um Oliver Nelson and I met several times and talked about the players we wanted to get for the date. We would play tunes on the piano and say, what do you think of this or that? And I said, Oliver, whatever you compose, it's got to be a gem. Let's just see what we can fit into 16 to 18 minutes aside on the LP. We had roughly 36 minutes of music and 18 minutes aside. As you got closer to the center of the vinyl, if you had a bass line, you would have to modify or EQ in order for it to track. I learned this from Rudy Van Gelder, and we had an agreement that what I taught the arranger, uh, keep in mind we're going to time the songs on each side, but when we get to the last track, we are confined to limit the program to 18 minutes because the bass is simply not tracked properly without EQing and reducing the impact of the bass. We had to be true to the physical limitations on music of that time. Did is that something? I mean, I, I found that that was doing that was stuff that he was doing for Impulse in the early to mid '60s. Uh, did you have to take into account uh, the idea that you only had a certain amount of time on each side of the vinyl and had to accommodate for, uh, for the bass? Yeah, but the big thing. And I still do this <clears throat> when I'm EQing and whatnot. I'm still in my head. I'm cutting vinyl, and lately we seem to be cutting more uh, more for vinyl than uh, making CDs. Uh, physical uh, product in CDs is about gone. There won't be any more, and it, uh, vinyl seems to be have risen from the grave. Absolutely, which is which is I think is great. It is. And as a consequence, when I was when I learned from Ted, and then later on, at Sunset Sound from uh, Brian Ross Myron, a great engineer, um, on disc cutting, and then later on from Wally Traug at Capital and Doug Sachs at the Mastering Lab and Bernie Grunman, when he uh, he was at Contemporary Records and then you know started his own, went to A and M and then to his own studio, is you learn about the limitations of the medium and you kind of keep that in mind as far as like sibilance is concerned what happens with your s's uh the big thing in in those days in the in the 60s the 70s with vinyl and before that having when in stereo by having bass if you put it to the side which we used to do in the 60s. We had the drums and bass on one side and the guitars on the other, or we had the whole rhythm section on the left and on the right was brass and strings and, and then background vocals and then the lead vocal. And a lot of times that lead vocal had the bass attached to it. So because those were the two things that you always wanted to have control of on the record, which was the bass and the vocal. <laughs> yeah, right. And if they were locked, which in those days we did. So... To, the thing that happens in vinyl, the further in you go, um, heavy bass tracking is an issue, but not as much as 
high frequency loss. You really start to lose it. And so, you know, when you mix, you, you kind of get a feel for what starts to work. But in this today, in this day and age, I can do things on vinyl with Bernie Grumman that I could not do then. We can cut things. We're a lot, we have a much more latitude. They, we used to do a thing called um, um, bass something. I can't think of where, where it is. It takes most of the low frequencies that would have been on either left and right and pumps them into the center so that the disc tracks better. When Rudy was doing his stuff, his automation couldn't compensate for that. So he had to use, yeah, low frequency blend, that's what it was. And he couldn't compensate for that. He had his lathe in his control room. I wish I'd ever been able to go there. I mean, very few people got to visit that. <laughs> no, I was gonna ask you if you ever got there. No, yeah. nobody was allowed. And uh, I mean, I met him a few times at uh, Mix Magazine Awards and uh, lovely man. But, you know, there were two places you couldn't go. One was the Rudy's, and the other was Motown Studios in Detroit. Interesting. Because I used to do a lot of Motown. Well, we're not going to jump that. I mean, this is so great. I mean, in truth, um, I, I, and I just want, you know, I mean, I remember interviewing uh, George Porter from The Meters, and, and he talked about, the um, in a lot of early recordings, you know, maybe in the fifties and the in the sixties, the the bass drum especially was not incredibly prevalent in the music. Um, no. dr drums were still an accompanist instrument. Uh, you you know, and I mean, can you talk about and a lot of your early? Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about the about the kick, the bass drum. Please, that was something that. I didn't hear in recordings that I, I always wanted. And so when I got, I mean, I was recording at Liberty Studios as well, uh, mainly doing song de demos with um, uh, Jackie DeShannon and um, PJ Proby, David Gates from Bread, um, Leon Russell you know, all these guys and the, and the remnants of the band Crickets after Buddy Holly died. And we used to do song demos. I mean, like three days a week. And I recorded a lot of them. That's how I, you know, got my feet wet. Um, and I always put a microphone on the kick. Um, Ted didn't. The other engineers I saw, Eddie Brackett, United Recorders, he didn't. Um, Bones Howe started doing it, I remember. Um, and, I, and I saw Al Schmidt did it, because I used to go around the studios, United Recorders and RCA, and, you know, visit. Very, I was very precocious at that time. <laughs> so I when I got to Sunset Sound, one of the big things that, you know, uh, like people like Jack Nietzsche, when he came in, mm -hmm. He was the arranger for Phil Spector. He got knocked out by the fact that Hal Blaine's snare and his kick were equal. You know, he, he got that punch 
on the low end working with the, the three bases. With three bases, they always had a, a stand-up base, uh, Dano Electric, which is kind of really real plunky, sure, and, sure, and a Fender with Carol Kay. And so you had all that weight from those bases, and you wanted the kick. So, but that wasn't uh, normal. I mean, those days, a lot of a lot of uh, jazz recordings from that era, and just pop recordings was one microphone overhead. That's what I want to talk to you about. So let me ask you something. I mean, Ted um, Lead, is that his name? Keep. Yeah. So Ted Keep, like what, what was the rationale for, was it just like music was being played more on the, on the top of the kit? I, I'm fascinated with why he wouldn't use a, a mic on the bass drum. I to mean, me, it's, it's, it's stylistically, it's what they were doing then. Which is, how would you describe he, what they were doing? He came from yeah. a different school. Sure. He heard things different than I did. You know, that's all. I mean, I'm lucky that people out there have been able to relate to what I do, the way I hear. You know, it's like, I don't know that you see the same color red that I do. <laughs> yes. So it's literally just what you're doing. I mean, like today, I listen to a lot of, a lot of recording, and it's mainly kick. And there are no symbols, you know. And it's kind of uh, it's 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 interesting because I used to I have I have a bunch of friends who are engineers, mixers, and they all approach drums differently. Uh, some of them you you wouldn't even know that anybody's playing on high hat or there are any symbols, ride symbols, crash symbols, and I always like. You hear the whole kit. That was my thing. I mean, one of my favorites was to uh, put a mic on the kick and uh, put up one U47 and just keep moving it until I heard the whole kit and it sounded big and crashy. Oh, I love I this. Love I freaking... Why, why, okay, so there's no judgment. What do, do you feel like mod, um, with digital music? Because, again, this is jumping into the I mean it was so disheartening when I was interviewing Ernie Watts and he's talking about hmm. Harvey Mason <clears throat> coming into the studio and programming his drum sound into a chip you know and you had these Lynn drum machines and to me okay I understand the the the, the drum machine is there's some I guess uh, value in it. Uh, it it's just the the, digi the digitization of beats you have you have now you have cats where someone will be in a room and they'll hear they'll, they'll hear some they'll hear some drums going on in another room and they'll say that's got to be a machine and they walk in and it's a human being comping machine parts so like over t to me what i love about your recording technique and so much of the sound of that time is that it was not quantized rhythm. It wasn't straight up and down. It wasn't so linear. There was a lot of the 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 the, the rhythm was round. Do you I mean, call that a performance? I just I I'm I just I feel like you so what is that you you were trying to get a lot uh, a performance in the studio recording whereas today like yeah there's no use why wh 
they okay, don't. Let me, let me, I know where you're going. Go so ahead. Let me, yeah. Let me flesh it out. As in the stuff that Rudy Van Gelder was doing and engineers from that era. We grew up, everybody played live in the studio. Their overdubbing was not something that was done a lot. Um, Les Paul was one of the very first people to do overdubbing. He built his own eight track and he was able to do stuff uh, that none of us could do. We, in, our, order, in order for us to overdub, is we always recorded live, everybody. Uh, at most studios in LA and I believe in, uh, in New York and London and wherever in Canada everybody recorded in one room and they used gobos and baffles to separate one another well at, at Sunset Sound I had the luxury and this is one of the things that became very attractive Tutti Camerata who owned Sunset Sound and at one time was the head of London Records and was the head of uh, Disneyland Records as their head of A&R and all. Um, he came up with the idea of building a vocal booth so that he could put Annette Funicello or whoever in the booth and get isolation from the band mm. because he didn't like the fact that there was all this leakage. You know, you didn't, you, you basically couldn't use any of the orchestra mics because it was so loud coming into the vocals. And if you go back and listen to the Frank Sinatra recordings and D. Martin stuff from Capitol and Nat King Cole, they all recorded in one room, but they had baffles around them. So to kind of build a little environment. But Tootie did that. And in the back of the studio, we had a mastering room, the disc mastering room. And I remember talking to Tootie, and he said, you know, we ought to move this mastering room to the back to another space. I said, yeah. I said, you know, and I told him, I said, can't we convert that into a string room for putting strings in? Because we always used to rec record strings live. And so over the weekend, believe it or not, we moved the mastering room cut a hole in the wall, put in glass, put a refrigerator door on, which is what <laughs> all over Sunset Sound has. And we were able to do things that none of the other studios could, record live strings and not have the rhythm leaking in it so you could get that tight punch on the, on the drums and the rhythm section. And uh, so that, that was a big change. I think, I, I'm not remembering what the... What the what the question was now? Listen, by the way, this is all stream of consciousness. You're doing so. You're 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 you for as frenetic and my. I don't even ask questions sometimes. So wherever your mind thinks you want to go, you just go there. Were you? You're assuming I have one. Of course. Well, I mean, it's very obvious that that you know you you've been putting in time on planet Earth, as Ben Sidron would say. But the thing is, um. Were you, I read somewhere, were you a jazz head? I mean, you, you were, were your, your folks were musicians, but. Uh, I like, I like music. Right, right. It's all music. Sure. Right. Yeah. And um, let's get back to this. But I mean, we'll come back to this. I want to get back to, 
a little bit of drum recording. Go ahead, please. And, and talk about uh, Jim Keltner, uh, Jimmy Gordon, Hal Blaine. Uh, God, I can't think of his name. The guy they did all the Motown stuff with. Yeah, Gadsden. No, 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 no. Oh, Ed Green. No, 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 no. Black. Um, I'll think of his. It wasn't. It wasn't James Gadsden. Nope. Was it Spider Rice? Spider Web. Gadsden was East Coast. Detroit. No, Gadsden was Gadsden was fully ensconced in Motown in in uh, in L.A. You're talking about Pistol Allen, maybe or. No, no. I'll think of his name. Uh, but anyway, I want to read you. So I just want to read you this. One. This is the one. I just think I. I want to bring a smile to your face here. Um, this is what I haven't sent you all the Keltner interviews yet. But he said in in one of them, he said I really liked Densmore's drum sound and the way he played. At the time, their producer engineer Bruce Botnick was engineering engineering most of the stuff I was doing, and I asked Bruce, "Hey, man." Why can't you get me the drums to sound like John on those great Doors records I'm hearing on the radio? Bruce laughed and said, John's always telling me, why can't you get my toms to sound like Keltner's? He said, Densmore's sound with the Doors back then, the magic of it was that he had a really terrible drum set. It was tuned really poorly as compared to the way you're supposed to tune drums as a studio player. What that meant to me... What's that? Did I say that? This This is what Keltner was saying to me. Oh, okay. okay what, what, that, what that meant to me was that the engineer had to have something to do. If you bring a drum set in that sounds really great, already tuned, then what's he going to do? He's not going to have to. But, you know, the reality is that John's set, is, they, were, they were going from being in the studio in the afternoon to going to the club, like to the whiskey and playing at night. Absolutely. And this was like every day. And he brought his own drums you know and he set them up and they were beaten but that was his sound that's the whole point good bad or indifferent how they were tuned that was john's sound dig and and what i would do is i'd capture it i don't depending i mean the style of recording drums has really changed uh because It went from one microphone, the drums, to me using three. You know, one overhead, one on the underneath the snare, and one on the kick. And then it changed, and and uh, uh, Keltner was the uh, beneficiary of that, I guess. <laughs> where, where we did two overhead, we did one on the hi hat, we did tom toms, we did the whole thing, which was the British style. They're the ones that came up with that whole thing and it, it wasn't like what Glenn Johns does I mean the uh, uh, funny thing is is that Al Schmidt does his recording of the drums very similar and and uh, that I that I got from um, Andy Johns right I mean he recorded them all together different and uh, you know from his Led Zeppelin days so I mean I'm, I'm a big fan of what everybody's doing and their sound but what we're all trying to do is to capture the sound of the drummer. Uh, it isn't up to us to make their sound. I mean, they've got to, you know, if they hit the drum, they say, I love the, the way that is. It's tuned, capture it. You know, and that's where it's at. You know, it's not up to me to, to do that. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I remember 
I did a um, for a movie called My Girl. We I did a sound alike of the song My Girl, uh, and actually got the Temptations in to sing it. Uh, but I used Jeff Picaro to play the drums, and what we did is I kept playing him the original take, and he played to it matching and we tr did lots of things of detuning his drum to get that boing you know the, the, that sound of their snare that they got back in Detroit sure um, and then wound up like I said earlier of taking one U47 and maybe putting it 15 feet away from the drums or more and with with a mic on the kick and compressing the shit out of it until we got it to have that crack and that distortion you know that was when we were trying to match something that took us hours to get there before we got we got near the sound did did pretty good so i mean all the motown stuff that i did i mean i had a floating drum platform because that's what they had in in detroit and uh, sharky hall there was the drummer dude i don't even know that name look him up he exists holy big... cow man where you're dropping dude i'm no, i'm used to uh pistol allen uh, uh benny benjamin uh gadston ed green but I, this is such a different type of uh i just want to go back for a second you you did because glenn johns kemper david kemper told me glenn was maybe one uh, two two mics overhead one left and right overhead and then one on the kick you said that the british no no no, no. no. that isn't what he did go ahead he, he he did one overhead one to the left behind the drummer maybe about four feet away kind of pointing at the snare and the hi-hat and then he had a kick and then one on one microphone on the on the floor tom and that was it and then yours yours at least pre-British invade you you stay you stuck with one on the on the on the snare, one on the yeah. on the kick, and one overhead. That's it. That is so, dude. I want to tell you, man. I'm, I don't want to jump too far ahead. My daughters and I, your albums in the mid '70s are the greatest. The Butts Band albums are the greatest recorded albums I've ever heard in my life. I've interviewed well, Mike. I've interviewed Michael Berkowitz too. You, you have my you have my address where to send the money, right? <laughs> Dude, man, I wore out these copies, man. Both of those albums. I'm like, that's when I first got hip to Botnik. If you really want to know those those albums, are so freaking. So talk a little in your mind. I just feel like in your mind today. That was the question I wanted to ask is why have modern engineers not saying it's good or bad have why why have they why can their why do their ears only hear a very compacted compressed sound no cymbals no crash cymbals I mean I have no idea I have no idea why it is the way it is uh, some of it some of the uh, hip hop stuff sounds fantastic I have to admit I mean, really, really good sounds, and it's very sparse. Mm. You know, the really thick pop stuff is 
a dimension that I don't understand. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that people don't record live anymore in the studio. So there's not that leakage of sound between instruments. I mean, part of the drum sound in the, that era was leakage into an acoustic guitar mic or a vocal or or leaking into the bass mic or whatever, you know, and the bass going in. And that gave size because the sound of an instrument isn't right at it. It's what develops as you get further away and you start to hear the room and things like that. So uh, it's, it's just a different way of recording. You know, I, um, MP3s, I mean, when I hear stuff in a majority of the streaming is that way. Unless you go to Neil Young's site and you can hear everything at, at 192.24. Right. Um, but I mean, when you, and I want to be very clear, I mean, because here we go, we got, I mean, some, also, the, can you just talk about, in your mind, sonically, when, I mean, because it's no coincidence, you're, you're working here, Tim Buckley didn't, sometimes didn't even, some of the albums he did uh, on Electra anyway, he didn't even have a trap set. He'd have like vibes. Um, John Sebastian, Tom Rush. This was folk era stuff after Dylan had gone to Newport and, pl- and, and, uh, and, and put a drum set on the stage. And I just wonder, I think part of it has to do sonically with the fact that the drums became a much louder sonic instrument they were very accompanied you go back to morello blaine Mm -hmm. those guys they were playing drums it was an accompanist instrument and then it became an overpowering instrument to the point where it to me it 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 let that leakage is what made it beautiful but sonically it's interesting to hear you talk about the 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 hip-hop of today and how sparse it is um is it a real person playing those drums you think sometimes I mean, I see, I, I, I see and hear them play live. That's not somebody out there, you know, pushing sounds out of a turntable. Right. You, no, you, they, they really, they really do it. Um, but it, I think a majority today, and I don't know this for a fact, so please, sure, everybody out there, don't quote me. I don't know what they're doing. You know, whether it's live or whether it's sequenced. I wouldn't be surprised if it's sequenced. I mean, if you go back to Carl Richardson recording the Bee Gees mm-hmm. with Albie Gluten as the uh, arranger down uh, down in Florida, um, they would to get that sound because they didn't have drum machines then. I remember Albie used to get have somebody like maybe Jeff Picaro play, just sit out there and just play play just the snare. Okay? And then he would take the snare that he liked and he would copy it a million times and then measure the beat using a, a ruler on tape and cut all these together so it was rigid, right? Sure. Then they record the kick and he would be listening to the snare drum and then he would go through and and cut the kick so that it was exactly right wow everything was 120 beats right um, and then they would overdub tom toms 
but not as rigid. It would, that would be they were listening to the, the kick and the and the snare, put on a hi hat, do tom toms, cymbals, you know, maybe one two passes, and that was a drum kit. So I mean, without drum machines, that's what they were doing. To get it that way. Talking to Bruce Bodnick here, I mean, the man has golden ears, the biggest ears. Where do you think, I mean, when you, I just want you to be as clear as, a lot of cats today, my generation and younger, um, when you say live, um, you know, we're talking Danny Korchmar, Chuck Rainey, Keltner, I don't know, the cats show up, you only have a certain amount of time booked in the studio, you got to knock out how many tunes, can you just... Even with the doors or any anyone, like when you say live, it doesn't mean that you get to obsess for four or five weeks over these tracks. It's done. It's cut, and you're oh, moving. Yeah, on. no, no. The musicians would come in. I can give you an example. Please. Um, when I did Dave Mason's album, Alone Together, song, Alone Together, Alone Together. Jim Keltner was a drummer. Yep. Leon Russell was on keyboards. Uh, God, I can't think of the bass player. Uh, he was in um, and played on Layla. Uh, uh, Carl Radel. Carl Radel. Yep. And it was it was the quartet with Dave playing guitar. And they always played live together to get the feel. And that's what I mean by live, is that everybody's in the same room or they're in separate environments, but they're all playing together. They're listening to one another because there's uh, the music, there's the emotion, there's the performance. I mean, it's still, I mean, when I, one of the reasons I went into recording movie scores with big orchestras, because it was live. The recording, the light went on and you had to perform. The orchestra performed, the, the composer or the conductor, I had to perform. I had to learn the moves. I mean, it was the same thing in pop music in those days. They'd come in to record two or three songs in a three-hour session. You had had the wrecking crew, okay? Sure. And they'd run the song down a couple times. You got your balance, boom, and you went for performance. Hey, that was a good take. Next song. It was literally that. <laughs> it's so yeah, we've oh man. And 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 that was great because you locked and then, and we recorded in those days on four track. We didn't have multi track, so you had to make your decisions live, echo everything. And that's really good because it 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 helps your vision as far as how you see and hear the song, the music. I mean, uh, generally today, I don't know how they do it, whether it's somebody has the vision from the get-go or they build. I mean, the Billy Eilish stuff is, is really good, and they do it in the bedroom at home. And yeah. it's one, one track at a time. Well, I mean, there was a couple. I wrote down some notes last night. Um, I, I also Was that? I said I believe that. Not, not. Most of this is just coming, you know, out of me. But I, I, I. How much do you account for the fact that, um, that these cats, and I'm talking about uh, Pete Jolly, uh, Julius Wechner, 
Emil, mm. rest in peace. Uh, Keltner, Densmore. Densmore was getting his skull broken open by Art Blakey and Elvin Jones. These, these guys were all jazzers. They all had huge ears, and they were – like even Phil Upchurch. You go to the Blue Thumb stuff you did with Tommy, that mm-hmm. stuff – those he was he was ensconced uh, in the studio scenes in Chicago um, it, with antiquated technology. I mean, even they had they had huge. It wasn't antiquated at the time. It was what it was. It was the cutting edge. Yeah, I shouldn't say antiquated in the studio. I mean, playing those guys played I mean, a lot. Let me, yeah. Let me go back. Let me go back to Ted Keep. Please. He custom built a four track machine. It was the first one that anybody had. Ted I mean, Keep. before uh, a truck, and he that he did that specifically for the chipmunks, and even found a way to put a a, a variac, which is a a controller like a volume control, but to control electricity that he could set with a frequency counter. To slow the machine down, so when uh, Ross Bagasarian sang and they, then they put it back up to speed, it was the chipmunks, and it wasn't just a matter of going from seven and a half IPS to fifteen IPS. This was in the cracks that they experimented with until they got it nailed. So the the technology was evolving, and um, I feel blessed that I was able to do things live. That doesn't discount anything individually that's done today no and i i'm yeah no i was just saying like a lot of those uh it wasn't necessarily the studio stuff was antiquated it was a lot of these guys had experience on the bandstand with pa systems that were very their ears were huge they could hear everything let's go back to jim keltner sure and you know he was he played a lot live a lot i mean he wasn't just a studio guy and one of the things that absolutely blew me away, because I'm a big fan of drummers. I'm a big fan of all musicians, <laughs> but drummers in, in particular, because they got a great sense of humor and a very sensitive people, and, and they lay it down. Uh, and, and Jim, the way he laid the backbeat down, was unlike anybody else I'd ever been around. He he played on somewhere on the backside of the beat, not really laid back, but not on on the beat or ahead of the beat. He was somewhere in that crack, and it's the way he would he would drop the hammer, you know, and and it what it did is it it created a great groove and it, a funkiness that a lot of bass players got into. I mean, Densmore always says that the drummer and the bass player are, are brothers, you know, because right. they get down and they, gotta, they lock, especially, you know, in the kick and the, and the snare. And, and when you hear how different drummers, where they put the beat, like Hal Blaine was always right on top of it, and if anything, a little bit ahead. And then you, you go back to... Uh, Keltner, when he, where he was on the backside of the beat. I mean, totally unique. I mean, I have no... Um, the closest guy that came... The guy that came the closest to that probably might have been 
Jeff Vaccaro. And then, you know, and then all, all the work that I did with Tony Williams. I mean, there's a jazz guy that moved into fusion and his sound and the way he played. I mean, there were times when I'd look at him when he was playing that he was really going and they were powering and I'd see him. He was like a jockey on a horse where he wasn't sitting on his stool. He was literally on, on the heels of his feet because he was controlling the simp, the hi-hat and the kick at the same time, literally off the ground, off his chair playing and it was I mean every every drummer has their own style their own feel and their own sound um basically I don't even know what you asked me no no I mean it's it's you know what it was um can you connect that to because you said you started off by saying Keltner played a lot live all those guys that then you said the doors were playing live they, they, you know, it was it was a beat up kit because they were playing all the time. But how did playing live? Um, I guess it's maybe self. Maybe they it bring seems, that into they bring that into the studio. Exactly, and that's the point. Is that younger cats that they don't have the ability to play live consistently six nights a week the way I mean, dude, those guys were playing. I mean, Keltner was playing with Albert Stinson live yeah. jazz and then in yeah. the you know i mean it, it was like they they were already loose you know they didn't have to come in and like i don't know the, the, you're you were can you talk about an experience or or i remember interviewing a uh engineer up in the bay area um stephen quinn barncard and he said that um that you know sometimes david crosby or 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 jerry garcia those cats you know they the musicians always believe they can do a, a, a better take. And, you know, the engineer is like, nope, that's it. You're done. That's perfect. And it happened with um, David Spinoza on the uh, that the Meters album, Right Place, Wrong Time, when Arif Mardin and Dr. John pulled him into the studio in Atlantic. And they, they you know, he was on his way to a jingle date. And they said, just lay this down, lay down a, a guitar solo. And he clammed a note. And he was like, "Let me do it again." They're like, "Nope, that was perfect." Sure enough, it became. Well, a- I, I can I can I can give you a little story on Please. that one. Uh, the first Tony Williams album that I produced, uh, called "Believe It" on Columbia. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I went back to I flew back to New York, went to Columbia Records, Fifty Second Street. At that time, I was a staff producer at Columbia, and. Uh, We had approximately an hour and a half. They brought all their stuff into the studio. He, Alan Pasqua, um, um, oh God. I'm gonna help you, don't even worry about it. I got, I got, I got your discount. I'm, I got I'm the embarrassed. Whole, anyway, no, 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 I got the whole um, thing here. Uh, what happened is I had to record two or three songs to take bits out for the convention just to play. You know, because we, in those days, Columbia Records had a convention and they brought everybody in from all over the world and A&R played what the music is and, you know, what we're doing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, one of the songs I recorded was a song called Fred, which is kind of uh, legendary. Um, and the band, they weren't even thinking. They were just playing. Right. Um, 
Give me a second, and I'm going to look up something. Why don't you talk for a second? Sure. Alan up. Holdsworth was on that album, too, by the way. Who? Alan Holdsworth. Yeah, that's who. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I apologize. No, no, please, don't, don't, don't ever apologize again. You're doing great. Yeah. Anyway, I <clears throat> when we said to record the album for real, about a month or so later, I came back to New York, and he wanted to do the do it again uh alan did holdsworth and i said okay but i think he nailed it <laughs> mistakes and all because there were there's some clams in there there's sure. some r- rhythmical things that tony didn't hit on but the feel was so extraordinary it shouldn't be changed so i said okay so we went in and we tried to record it again it just didn't rise to that that spark and then and then I said okay Alan that's not working I said but you want to try playing the solo on the recording that we did as the demo and he said yeah I'd like to do that and he did it and it was perfect and it sucked (laughs) Uh, I told him that I said man we're going out with all the warts on it. Right. And it, and it proved to be true because it became legendary, that, 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 that solo and all. I mean, it's just, emotionally, it's just spectacular. And, and uh, Tony Newton on bass, Alan Pasquale on, on keyboard. Piano, yeah. Them, yeah. And, and, and Tony Williams. Yeah, it's full of flaws, but boy, does it feel good. And that's jazz. That's so. Did you work? I just want to be clear. This, the, Curtis Amy, were you working with him on this with him? Yeah, and, I did. A, Tutti Camerata had his own label called Coliseum Records. Right. And we did an album uh, with Curtis. <sighs> and that's how I met Curtis. When you, um, I, I just am curious about, like, did you. Did you start working in the studios? Uh, like, what was the first band that you would have considered that, like, truly plugged in? Like, Love obviously was high fre- high frequency, you know, electric bass. But even Gabor Zabo, like, with Keltner, he was using an acoustic guitar with that had amplification that had an electric that had amp abilities but there was like acoustic piano obviously the drums were acoustic were you in were you doing stuff i mean like buffalo springfield that was pretty acoustic i mean did can you talk about the the difference in in how um you know how you how you would go about uh you know miking the room or miking the players based on if it was a sort of a folk gig versus when amplification came in i mean people start calling that music fusion you did that weather report album some people would say that the first fusion music was when dizzy gillespie brought in chano pozo in 45 and that was afro-cuban jazz but fusion music to me means you are um everything is electric and uh and but a lot of the acts in the '60s that you were doing were acoustic. I mean, was the did did, did you 
was there a difference in your technique, miking techniques in those settings? I don't think so. I don't think I, I, I have, um, sometimes I'd start out with a band with certain microphones that I thought would be right for this person, this musician. And then once I heard their sound and all, uh, I would change microphones because microphones all have different sounds. They hear differently. They do. Like lenses on a camera. What were your go? So you you did the your the your four. What were your go to mics? I love this. Well, for drums, it was always uh, Sony C thirty seven, and uh, which is a tube microphone, which was Sony's version of the Telefunken U forty seven, but it didn't look like it. Uh, and uh, and then the forty seven. It, it, it again, it depended on the music and what. You're trying to do, you know, or trying to realize, because you're trying to realize the artist's sound and give that to the public. Uh, I mean, I like to believe that I'm invisible, you know, because my name's not on the front of the album. No, it's on the back of the album. Every time I see Botnick's yeah, name over but, and over and over again. Yeah, so I'm just saying that, you know, it's like you got a palette, you're like a painter, you got a palette of color. And you, the microphones are like the different colors on the palette. It's like when I do, do my big movie scores. Um, very rarely would I use exactly the same thing, depending on what the score was like. I mean, I, 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 I had a, the option, I mean, the ability to go and listen ahead of time to what the composer was composing, because a lot of them were using... Uh, samples are playing keyboards in and they record it because they had to show it to the director and get the director to be on board. So I would have a good idea of where it was going before we got in there so that I could stage everything accordingly. Um, I mean, it's like, I mean, at Sunset Sound, I was in one room all the time. All the time. I knew every inch of that room, what it sounded like. If I put the drums in the center of the room versus up against a brick wall, you know. So depending on, on the, I mean, the act that was coming in would would change the setup. And uh, like with the days when I was doing a lot of stuff with the uh, wrecking crew and even with the doors because, you know, the day would start off in the morning at nine o'clock in the morning doing commercials radio commercials and then from say two to five it was pop music and then in the evening it was rock and roll for three hours four hours because it cost more to record at night so they everybody tried to lay off that in those days so you you basically have a basic setup the microphones are what you use all the time. You know what they're going to do, and if and if something isn't working, you can change it. But basically, I had the luxury of being in one room all the time. It's like like uh, for a while I had that at Capitol Record Studio when the studio in its original form. And and after it got changed, Al Schmidt spent the most time in the room, and he's really got it nailed. And he knows exactly 
what to expect. So it, it's. Um, I mean, you're making it sound so easy. With, I mean, it has to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing is that I think people today, for whatever reason, are obsessed because we have all this technology that can fix things that they are obsessed with perfection and they have forgotten about a feel. I mean, even this conversation, uh, we'll hang up the phone. You're going to be like, I don't even know what I just said, but it felt good, hopefully, you know? But I mean, to me, it's like, um, did you, I, I sort of, I wrote down this name last night. I, I, did you connect with Henry Mancini at any point? Yeah. Can you talk about Mancini? Did he? But I didn't yeah. record. I didn't record with him. That was uh, one of the dreams that I had. But because I, I see this one, this one thing here early in the in Young Botnik's career, uh, it was <laughs> uh, Batman T. Oh, that was the Ventures Batman TV thing. I thought I thought the TV stuff you might have been working with Mancini. Uh, well, I did that with the Ventures, but I also did it with Tommy LaPuma producing was an organ player and I can't think of his name for Anim or it was a single that we did. And that was pretty cool. I remember that one. But the Ventures were a whole different planet. I mean, these guys, <laughs> talk about recording live, they came in totally ready and played live. And we used to record direct to mono, stereo, and a four track machine. And from 10 to 1, we'd do side 1. Yep. From 2 to 5, we'd do side 2. Cut it all together. Cut the masters, lacquer masters that night. And in a couple of days, the album would be up. That is... And would you consider those guys... I think that's kind of the magic of the... I mean, being a, a someone who just is an omnivore when it comes to music, um, did you find it invigorating? I mean... The Wrecking Crew, I mean, forget about it. I mean, the, the, those guys burned, like, I love listening to, like, Tommy Tedesco albums with, you know, Jimmy Bond and Amel. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're just, they're, they, they, they go through all the music. It's not, there's no genre. It's just, um, you know, did you enjoy working with skiffle players, uh, surf players, guys that really were self-taught um, because they weren't so hung up on uh, that's, that's kind of a two-part question I mean by the well, when Holt... the musicians, yeah. musicians of that era myself included and we're, it, was a, it was a period of, of growth and nobody was poo-pooing any style of music uh, and they borrowed I saw a lot of jazz guys borrow like the first love album that I did Love. Um, the Capo? I, yeah, huh? The uh, Capo, is that what it's called? No, no, no. It's called Love. It was the first. Self titled. Album. Self titled, yeah. Then, then it was the Capo, and then it was Forever Changes. Mm -hmm. um, but that album influenced a lot of jazz musicians, believe it or not. In what At way? East West Coast jazz musicians. That I, and I was doing a lot of jazz recording for World Pacific Records, Pacific Jazz. Were you were? So um, they listened and because jazz at that time was trying to find itself and to be uh, relevant. 
you know, because the, the days of the 50s, um, bebop, bebop and all, you know, it was over. That's right. And because it, it got to the point where jazz was cerebral and it wasn't, people weren't dancing to it anymore. And through, through history, if you look at popular music, people dance to it. And when stuff goes out of vogue, it's because it's become cerebral and you can't dance to it. Dude, I love Bruce Botnick, man. I mean, this, this is like, dude, well, first of all, there's, a, okay, so explain to me, uh, this love is, is such a mercurial group. Um, that was the first pop album that Electra ever put out. Now you're saying that the rhythms were infectious to, or, or jazzers picked up on the rhythmic quality of it, and, and be, or how did they infuse it into? Well, um, Arthur Lee uh, was a huge jazz fan, and he always, if you listen to his singing and you feel the rhythm, it's like Sinatra. The, the really good singers have a lot of rhythm mm -hmm. in the way that they, where they place the note and a lot of later uh, jazz singers thought that singing so far behind the beat that you fall over was cool <laughs> it wasn't it didn't swing anymore right I love this and and Arthur was really good at that and a, a little story that I'll tell you um, that I, I think I've mentioned before is that when we were doing forever changes we always did the vocals live even though we'd replace them so that, you know, the guys were playing and they were hearing the rhythm of the singer and, you know, it all worked together. Uh, Benny Goodman, this was at United Western Recorders Studio One. Um, and Benny Goodman was in Studio Two. Now, he, he was on in years, but for some reason he was there playing. That is unreal. And then he uh, happened to hear what we're doing, and he came down the hall and came in, and, and he sat down next to me, and he was listening. And he said, he said to me, that cat knows jazz about Arthur. Holy Because the way cow. he was praising his vocals. Oh, my God, this is great. And if you listen to, listen to, to Arthur singing, you can really hear it. Now, this is the first album, 66. No, no, this is Forever Changes. Forever Changes, album. 67. Goodman was in the studio listening. Hmm? Goodman was with you in the studio. Well, he came in for 15 minutes or something like that. I mean, you're kidding. I nearly fell over backwards. Uh, dude, I would have, I, I mean, that, that would have been, oh, my <clears> God, unbelievable. Um, I, I, you just blew my mind here again. All music guide. Not sure if you're hip to that or not. Um, they yeah. have. They have a very wonderful, uh, you want to talk about the deepest bag for an engineer I've ever seen, a ton of Botnik, but I don't see any credits as it relates to Dick Bach and World Pacific. So were you doing Alu Raka, Buddy Richard? Tell me a little bit about... No, I, was, I did stuff... Um, the single... Chet Baker, I did an album... You did a Chet Baker. Don't even gloss over that. Well, let's talk about it. But, 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 I got to say, and it was arranged by Jack Nietzsche. It was a takeoff on the Tijuana Brass. Okay? Really? So it wasn't a, a click, quote unquote, 
jazz album. It was an album that Dick Bach put together to get some money into Chet's life because Chet, you yeah, know, was he was out, yeah, a heroin addict, yeah. you know, to try and save him. I mean, Chet literally was a almost like a session man on it, and it was kind of sad, but it was still cool because he was Chet Baker. And, um, oh, God, I can't think of the saxophonist. Harold Land. No. I didn't get a chance to work with her. I mean, I worked with all those guys as session musicians on jazz st stuff, a lot of West Coast stuff, uh, big bands, uh, backing up singers. I mean, the, the, the list of musicians. Oh, well, I mean, I, this is, because I'm not getting, uh, this is now new, ter so it was Jerry Mulligan, maybe? No, I didn't have that lucky. I wasn't that lucky. <laughs> Dude, no, I, I mean, don't... this is on, so wait, you're, because I mean, World Pacific, there was like, uh, you know, the folk swingers and Hal Blaine would play drums on that. I mean, there was some weird, that was the weirdest, coolest, eccentric label I've ever Scene. Well, Pacific Jazz and World Pacific. I mean, I mean, he's the one that that brought Ravi Shankar into into the world. Did you work with Ravi? Did you record him? No, uh, I I worked on an album of his daughter Anushka with him, and he was a he was a very dear dear person. Anushka. Yeah, his daughter. She plays. She's the foremost uh, player in the world today. Oh, by the way, I, I believe I know this. You worked with Bud Shank, didn't you? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That was one of the albums. Okay, so there was with, one album that um, you never worked with. I, I believe it was Lewis Hayes, Gary Peacock, Bud Shank, and Ravi Shankar, World Pacific. I mean, you want to talk well, about... I didn't do that one. I <laughs> what was it? I worked with yeah. Bud, Bud for many, many, many years, but as a session musician on movie scores. Sure. He played in the, you know, I mean, that's the thing about the musicians in L.A., the jazzers, couldn't make a living being a jazz musician. So they they did studio work and then, you know, at night went to the clubs and played. Tell me a little bit about your, I mean, you know, what you, what kind of instrument did you play? What, how, what kind of musicality did, I mean, what, what I mean, was... I played uh, saxophone for a while. I wasn't very good at it. But I played. And in the same vein as like, were you trying to, I mean, there was some, there was a magic going on in that time. I mean, were you somebody that, uh, that, you know, were, you were trying to channel maybe like a Stan Getz kind of feel or, or. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I just, um, I knew early on that I wanted to, uh, to do what I wound up doing. I'm sure. When I was in high school, junior high school, because I used to go to sessions with my parents, my father when he was in the orchestra, my mother when she was music copyist, <clears throat> and I was always more interested in what was going on in the control than what was going on in the studio. So uh, I kind of, I kind of was there. I mean, I played the saxophone in school in high school. Uh, uh, to, to be around the music because I love musicians I just love being around them 
So uh, well, that was that yeah. was a, a thing, and it, and playing an instrument, good, bad, or indifferent, was uh, a way for me to connect. Once I put that horn down to play the console, that was my instrument. We're all very fortunate for that. I mean, do you do you remember my favorite Tim Buckley album, Happy Sad? Mm. No drums. David Friedman played marimba, percussion, uh, vibraphone. Um, I John there was a there was a, basically a bass, congas, and guitars. Um, mm-hmm. What was Buckley like? I mean, you know, you hear these stories about uh, certain cats in the studio, uh, uh, very mercurial. Or I mean, was he the kind of cat where you could? drop one mic and i mean because i love that that's that 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 recording is it just it just breathes man i mean i can't imagine there being i think that's the other thing people are miking the entire drum kit now that's the problem so there's no space the part part of the it depends it depends again the the situation sure you know if you're uh on, on what the music it tells you what it needs to do some you can get away with and you can. I mean, if I listen, I listen to the Foo Fighters, and they're they're multi mic'd on those drums, and they and a lot of that sounds fantastic. You know, um, I can't do some of the things that a lot of engineers can do. They hear it that way. I don't, and but that's okay. And then when I attempt it, it comes out sounding like me, which is fine. But it's it's a uh, you know, it all depends on the music again. You know, what, what it, it tells you what it needs, where it's got to go. And if you're going in the wrong direction, believe me, they'll, musicians will tell you. What was it like to, um, <clears throat> I, I'm curious because I know that when Emil came out mm. to L.A., um, he spent, he recognized that there were cats that were playing uh, chimes, tablas, um, all sorts of hand percussion, and the only uh, all the the wind players would be getting double scale uh, if they played, you know, flute and sax on or clarinet. Those guys would get it, but the percussionists would not. So when he got mm. out there, uh, he Don Lamont, Shelley, they met every Sunday at his house and developed a whole list of. You know the the, the instruments, uh, and then they went to the the, the company and, as the union members, and they advocated for uh, double scale, and uh, and they got it. And I wonder, I mean, you're not you didn't compose songs, nope. But what was? But you were a member of the union. Would you just get paid scale for the sessions, or do you? Well, s- when I was at at Sound Recorders. Um, at some point, we became members of the IBEW, uh, which was what was at United Recorders. RCA was NAB. Capital, it was IBEW. Um, Columbia was IBEW. And uh, that was never a hindrance that I know of. But, it, you know, it wasn't this thing where, you know, where, if you don't know where uh, you recorded for 50 minutes and you gotta you gotta have, take your 10 minute break no matter what 
even if the band's going good. Right, know, that, right. That didn't exist. <laughs> well, no, I was more interested in, like, the idea that do you still, like, where, I mean, thank God, I mean, a lot of cats today, young, older cats especially, they're, they get a pension. Uh, and they'll see, and based on pub, pub, uh, publishing, they might still get royalties. I mean, as an engineer for hit records or hit songs, uh, I just I'm I'm, I'm asking because I don't know. Did you, outside of getting paid for the sessions, do you no. still see royalties at all or a pension today? If I was a producer, yes. Engineer, no. So I can look back at my canon. And no, I didn't. I didn't get extra money. Uh, musicians have a reuse uh, thing and a usage fee, where they a lot of money is paid in from the record companies, and it's distributed based upon the amount of sessions that you've done. You get these bonuses at right. the end of the year, but we don't have anything like that in what I do. I mean, it's just. You know, if you're we're a record producer, like Al Schmidt with the Jefferson Airplane, I mean, yeah, I believe he gets some royalties. They're not huge. Same thing goes, you know, with the Doors and Dave Mason and other artists that I produce. Kenny Loggins, you know, any uh. money. They all over time, that music isn't as relevant, and the people that were in that space are not buying music per se. Streaming has changed everything. That's why there's no, basically no physical media anymore. And as a consequence, any the royalties uh, agreements and the contracts, and this is for the artists and some producers, um, they were based upon physical, don't take into account streaming. So it's, it's a brave new world. I don't know what the answer is. No, absolutely not. No, but you. But as a producer, uh, uh, well, I just want to go. This is I, I haven't sent you my interview. Densmore and I did a classic interview a while ago, and 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 I want to. I believe you were the one to make this call, but you can tell me the truth. You were there. Um, you know, when I open up an album like Soft Parade, <clears throat> um, you know, you get this garden variety of like iconic session cats, like dear friend Ray Neapolitan or Harvey Brooks and uh, and when I asked uh, Densmore why he said you know Ray's uh, there was not enough punch in the left hand bass uh, on his keyboard so um, they had to bring in or you guys had to bring in uh, electric bass players was well, that we did it on the first Doors album as an overdub so Explain that you the first album you when and upon listening back there wasn't enough. Did, who who made that? Did you say there's just not enough? I, I think it was. Uh, I mean, I think I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure that that uh, I think it was probably the six of us, the four Doors and Paul Rothschild, myself, made that decision. You know, in talking about it, and. Um, I recommended the musician that we overdone. Matt filled up a, a track on the four track. Wow. Um, and this was, uh, was this Light My Fire? 
Yeah, no, it's one of the songs. I think there were like about half of the album was overdubbed with bass afterwards. So we had the piano bass and the Fender bass playing together. Right. So I'm, I'm just curious, like in that context with those guys, um, if if it, it if it had worked out that there was enough punch with Ray's left hand. Well, I mean, we I mean, from when we went into the second album with Doug Lubon, I mean, he, we used the live bass player on from that point on in the studio we didn't not record with a live bass and ray was free to play proper left hand he didn't have to have you know lefty that's what he used to call his left hand who played the piano bass so absolutely um did, did you do you have any memories of of, of uh i mean keltner and jim gordon played double drums with Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Mm -hmm. uh, um, there was some work he did with John Clemmer. Did, what was it like? Did you do you have a memory of double bass? Uh, I mean, of double drums, miking double drums. Oh yeah, I did a lot of it. I did uh, with Les Dudak's album "Say No More." I brought in Tony Williams and Jeff Beccaro. Dudek told me together. that. He said, but you brought them in. Let's just be clear. You, you... Well, I was a producer. Mm -hmm. You know, and I talked to the artist. Um, used, I brought Tony Williams in for Ray Manzarek's Golden Scarab album. That's what my favorite. I mean, dude, the Solar Boat, those, 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 those Botnik men, I, I, I guess I just, do cats, like, are you still um available for people if, if that if they reach out to you to yeah i mean i, mean, I did a yeah. grammy award winning album last year with a mon lafayette uh, a latin american album it was very popular was there anything fundamentally um like in terms of using pro tools or i mean are you still basically working off this pro tools is just a recording medium it's no different than the 16 and the 24 eight-track machines we use. So it's just something to capture. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to be said for analog. Believe me. Yeah, Over I was going to say. I mean, analog. You guys. That's what. That was what. That's why. I mean, there's a reason why people don't. It's just really. But, yeah. But the digital domain is is uh, repeatable. Right. It doesn't change, and analog does. You get it on tape and. 15, 20 minutes later, you'll play it back and it doesn't sound the same. The high frequencies start to go because the, the magnetic particles in the oxide want to go back to their inert stage. So, I mean, I've done tests where we ran analog and digital and immediately did a playback locked together and the a analog was kicking ass. And then maybe half an hour later, play them. Oh, it's not sounding as good as the digital. <laughs> So tell me, I mean, how much can you talk about this? Why, did, not that why did it win the Grammy, but I mean, what, what, what was the, you know, the, your process? Has your process really changed fundamentally since you began? Was there anything different? Um, like, why did they even come search for you just because of your name? I just I don't know. he was a big fan of Tony Williams, the producer, and so he came to me and said do this album and they rehearsed for a couple of days they brought musicians in from 
South America, from Brazil, from New York, from New Jersey, some from out here. And uh, they rehearsed for a couple of days, and then we went into Capitol, and we recorded everything. Everybody was playing live. She was singing live. Um, I mean, it was two two percussionists and a drummer, keyboardist, um, ba electric bass player, and sometimes sta uh, stand-up bass, and that was that was in a in an isolation booth for the stand-up bass. And in in what would be the drum booth where Al Schmidt puts his drums, I had uh, the acoustic guitars and also the the other singer who sang along with uh, Moan. And so we did it in the studio. And then on the third day, they brought in an audience of about 30 or 40 people. And they performed everything that we were done for two days plus the other two days. We did it live, and that was the album in the studio. A whole enchilada, no overdubs. Wow. And that was, and it was, it was, it's a real. When you haven't done live a lot, you have to memorize the music, so as to know what to turn up and what to turn down and where it's supposed to be on the song. So it's kind of cool. It's very, very rewarding to do things live. I, I, I and 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 part of it is just the the budget must have been huge for that. I mean, no. Really, but it was, it was. Well, you're not talking about that many musicians. I know you just, you just the, stu the studio time. Uh, today's the studio time isn't huge either. Uh, I don't want to even venture a guess how much it costs, but it wasn't huge. We did the album basically in three days. It was done. You know, we're gonna. We've been cooking for ninety. I want to do set two with you if if you if you're up for it um, in the new year. Uh, I, I, I just didn't need to be that emphatic. Excuse me. I didn't mean to scare anybody. <laughs> no, you're fine. I I want to I want to end this 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 set. Um, Good, because I'm hungry. I need. I know. Lunch. I can I can tell you. I mean, we we your brain. I've been we've been really working. You've been dropping so much knowledge. Um, okay, I'm just gonna go through the four L's of my program with Bruce Botnick here. What is your concept of leadership, especially as a producer, and um, and what are the most important qualities of leadership in the studio? I, I, I really believe for you to say you were already well ensconced in your career when you told Alan Holdsworth, warts and all, we're going forward. Today, a lot of people, they want to please the artist. They want to kowtow. You had to learn to stand up for yourself. So what are the qualities of leadership in the studio for Bruce Bodnick? Uh, be a good listener. Uh, pay attention to uh, the artist, their emotion, what's going down, and try to make an environment which is very creative. And if it's not working, don't do it. Because that puts a stigma in everybody's head. You know, like my room, if I go in there and I'm mixing, and it just doesn't sound right, I'll lock the door and go home. Come back later. I may 
get to all of a sudden wake up at three o'clock in the morning and then, you know, want to do it. <laughs> right, right. And go in and do it. And it's you just have to pay attention to the emotions and uh, not use the word no too much. I love that. So, but I, mean, you, you, I have to, to guide go, yeah. everybody to to get to that point where you're not conscious. You there were you would. It's fair to say that early in your career, you would. It was was it hard for you to get to that point to say I have to walk away from this and come back to it later? Uh, no, because I wasn't in in I wasn't the producer. Right. Right. What is yeah? Um, what is your? Con- I never left the studio anyway. I would sleep on the couch. <laughs> what, I mean, why did why did I want to go home? For what reason? When I got married is when I started going home. I did. No, it's beautiful, man. I. Uh, what is your concept of love? Uh, respect. Right. Is it the same? Yep. I think it's important. Respect is actually the most important thing. Um, I mean, I heard, you know, Jim Keltner wax eloquently. I mean, dude, you want to talk about tears, man. I mean, you know, I love that. I know, I know it's hard to come up with the poetry that Keltner can come up with. I mean, the musicians that I've been blessed to work with, are, I'm going to say, almost across the board, really lovely people. They are. Good people. And being artists, they have their uh, fallacies, but they love what they do. And I love what I do. I'm blessed to be there, to be in the same room with the Jim Kildner, to have that emotion come into my body. So, R E S P E C T. That's what it means to me. Respect. Absolutely. And uh, can you talk about a time in your career when I mean, to you know, you weren't a musician, but uh, a lot of these guys um, overcame a lot um, and went through some very dark times. And I wonder if if you there's a time in your career when you faced some adversity and what it was and how you overcame it and how it made you just a stronger person constitutionally. Uh, I try to pay attention to if I'm thinking too much. You want to get in the spirit mind, not the thinking mind. Yeah. I have an adage I like to use with um, musicians and just in general, don't think too much. It's dangerous because then you're not allowing yourself to just be. You know, it's like Chevy Chase said in uh, Caddyshack, be the ball. Oh, my God. Listen to you. Oh, my God. So it's... it's, Be the ball. No, 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 no. You can overthink things. You can lose the emotion, and it becomes really... And it doesn't move people. And that's why live recording is magical because you don't mm-hmm. you don't have time to think. You don't have time to think. You just do. Right. Exactly. All right. Listen. We. All your favorite jazz recordings are literally that. 
I mean, dude, you can the visceral, the burning nature of the of the music I love. It, it's there's no everyone is just in the spirit mind, man, and it's and and you know I think that you, um, yeah, I mean you wanted to be in it and you set the table for that and that to me is legacy, Bruce Botnick and uh, so we just cooked here for um, ninety five minutes. Uh, let's can we do set two in in like maybe January? Sure. Beautiful. Look Mark, up Sharky Hall, everybody. Sharky Hall. S-H-A-R-K-E-Y-H-A-L-L. The drummer on so much of the West Coast Motown stuff. You just blew my, And you're talking about like the Gene Page, like that era of Motown? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, also, uh, song that I did with uh, he played on Louie Baby, Baby I Love You uh, for for VJ Records. Oh my God. And God. I can't. Fred, Fred, Fred Hughes was the artist. Oh my. Great song. Great sound. I mean, it was just. The chart was so cool. Is he still with us? Is Sharky still around? I have no idea. All right. All I know is that he would come in, set up his drums, very meticulous, and his cymbals were always polished. It was like a mirror. <laughs> it was fantastic. And they sounded great. Um, Bruce, thank you for taking the time, man. It was I'll have this up later tonight. It was uh thank you for dropping knowledge and, and please know that um your legacy will continue to grow uh as we move on here. In fact, most of my show I recognize will be completely salient long after I've left this planet, but I'm totally cool with that and um because i know what i'm doing i'm on the righteous path and i've also discovered and like you said the musicians by and large that you were your peers and that you grew up with and recorded um are incredibly decent people and we need that more than ever in today's time so i find generally music and artists are very sensitive and aware. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, why wouldn't you want to be surrounded by that? I mean, our, our the political nature of the country right now has forgotten about the arts. And that is so that that joy is not in people's hearts. And the vibration and is so low because of that. And, well, actually, that's the other... I mean, I could, be, I could keep you on... you got to go eat, man. Go eat. I, we got we got more to do. <laughs> right. Remind me, remind... I want you to think about this question over the, over the holiday. <clears throat> is how the significance of music has changed in our culture. I think it's really important. That's yeah. your homework. Well, it's become... It's become... Uh, it's made for pacification. It's made for multitasking. It's not made for visceral burning. It's, it's really become corporate. Very corporate. Yeah. That's it's, the beauty of Jack Holtzman. I'll, I'll, the, yeah. I'll just this one little rant. Go ahead. And then we'll go bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. Is that today the way of music, the way it was done in the heyday of the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s was the record companies signed the artists they made the music. They showed it to marketing and promotion. And it was marketing promotion's job to go and sell it. 
and to get it on the radio, get it heard, people go by it, and build the career of the artist. Today it's the other way around. Because the record companies do not have their own distribution, now there is Spotify, Amazon, Apple. Apple is not so much, isn't this way so much as uh, some of the others, where they tell the record companies what they'll put out. And so the art, you know, the, the art part of it is missing now because they're making the decisions and it's not made by music people. So, Dude, why are you, why are you, why, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting till the end to drop this? And that's it. Because Jack Holtzman, Electra, it was a kind of a boutique label, but the bean counters were making money. They left, they, they, they let the people who were good at what they did do their jobs. And then the bean counters got in and said, Oh, we know what's right. We're going to tell the people how to make the music and make it so that it can be sold at a mass level and the art was stripped away and the burning and all of that, the, the art and the music, musical quality of it, it became totally codified. And anyway, it's just, dude, you, you are vital. Your knowledge is vital for art, the continuation, the lineage of music and We'll do it again, man. So much love yep, to you. And everybody knows where to send the money, right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just going to bring next time when things are finally, I'm bringing you, dude, the art of tea, both butts bands records. Um, those are my favorite, dude, the botnik recording style just reigns. Wilton Felder and John Guerin, man, the way you, it was just, obviously those cats were, the best but it was the music it, it, it was but i mean <laughs> but I'm, like i said at the intro man there are plenty of i just i find it i find the the um there's no space in the music and obviously as miles said you know silence is music too and leakage is great and um you don't want it to be sloppy but you want it to be live and that's bruce botnick man so yep. much leakage love man is your friend Yo, listen, happy holidays to you. It was great to hang with you, man. You too, and uh, stay uh, cool at this time of the year. <laughs> you too, man. Okay. All right, be cool. Cheers. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. What an honor. Bruce Botnick, uh, really a hero of modern uh, modern American music, and um, I really believe that, um, you know, you could talk to anybody out there. Um uh, guys that have left this planet and uh, also peeps that uh, are still around that um, he was essential in the uh, in the sound of, of great music and, uh, and and a lot of hits and a lot of just beautiful grooves uh, we'll be back in a little while with Meredith Hart this is the Jake Feinberg show we'll see you later
was 16, thought I'd have some fun. Hitched to ride on a diesel truck, headed for Washington. I know now what my papa meant when he told me heart to heart. Son, you'll find out soon enough, life is just an amusement park. keep striving for uh, every day what what get, what keeps you getting up in the morning what, what makes your